I'd always had this sense of I ought to do more. And so, I, you know, I was involved in various bits of community work in Suffolk. I ran the local youth group, but I had been frustrated by not really finding an outlet for that until I met Sue Ryder and suddenly saw that actually there was a job there. There was a possibility of a career there, although not many people gave up careers in the law at that point to go off and work for charities and my partners all thought I was completely bonkers but <laughs> then you, one what, chap, did, what did you say to them when they said that you were bonkers what was your answer did you well, have a response I, you know, I, I just talked about how excited and committed I was about the opportunity and what was very interesting was that they and other senior lawyers in the town one or two of them came to me sort of privately and said oh I wish I'd had the chance to get out when I was your age. Mm. And I think I think that was actually, that was the moment. I can vividly remember somebody talking to me in the street and saying exactly that. He was by then, I was in my 30s, he was in his 50s. And I think that was a really influential moment. My goodness, you know, that guy has been doing that job for 20, 30 years and he hates it. What is the point of that? Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018, in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. So Nicholas Young is a solicitor and charity worker, operating as Chief Executive of Macmillan Cancer Relief between 1995 and 2001, and Chief Executive of the British Red Cross from 2001 to 2014, stepping down from the position following the tragic death of his son Alex. Having studied law at the University of Birmingham, he made a somewhat unconventional career pivot in the mid-80s when he became Secretary for Development at the Sue Ryder Foundation and never looked back. A much lauded career that has also included positions within the government, Nicholas was knighted in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in 2000 for services to cancer care. He was made a Freeman of the City of London in 2007 and in 2009 was invited to become a companion of the Chartered Management Institute. Sir Nicholas is also chair of the judging panel for the Asian Women of Achievement Awards. I was brought up in South London, a place called Cheam. My father was a local builder and mum ran the local brownie pack. I went to school uh, near Cheam, a little private prep school called Homefield and then I went to a state grammar school in Wimbledon so that was my early upbringing then I went off to university at Birmingham to read law. I read that your father was a prisoner of war he was in a camp in Italy is that right? Yes he, he was he, he well he fought all the way through the war from Dunkirk right the way through to D-Day but uh, for part of the time he was captured in North Africa and then he was imprisoned in Italy for about six months, managed to escape and spent another six months on the run, hiding out from the Germans and working his way down through Italy, staying in lots of tiny little villages up in the mountains. 
being helped by some very, very generous Italian people who, you know, would sort of look after him for a night and then move him on. And eventually he got back to the Allied forces and got back to Britain and went straight back out again just after D-Day to fight all the way through Normandy and Belgium and Holland to the German border. And so he had a pretty amazing war and some very exciting adventures, but he almost never talked about the war and he really didn't tell me any of this. So uh, after I stepped down from the Red Cross, I decided to research it in detail, which I did. And then found myself writing a book about it. Oh, did you? You've written a book published about Published last it. year, yeah, yeah. It was, great. it was a great experience. I mean, it was wonderful to really have a chance to get close to my father, you know, which I, I suppose I hadn't been, we'd been close, but not hugely close, because he was a very reserved person. And um, yeah, it was just amazing discovering what he had done and what he had seen, and then some of the terrible experiences he'd had too. Mm, yeah, you must have, must have scarred him for life in many ways and yet he was still you know a lovely kind generous father and you know just didn't talk about it. Do you think that strength of character is something that you have instilled within you I suppose particularly from like a scholastic point of view where you were a particularly diligent student were you very dedicated hard-working what were you like when you were studying? No, no, I wasn't particularly diligent or hard-working and I, I played some <laughs> sport and had some had some fun of course but I, I think I think my both my parents did instill me, and this was true of so many parents who had lived through the war. You know, my parents' generation, they were imbued with a very strong sense of duty and responsibility. And whilst I could never claim to come anywhere close to living up to my father's uh, ideals and the things that he did in the war. I think I did always have that sense of duty and responsibility and I think I've carried that through my life. I hope I've passed it on to my children too. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you have. What was your first job out of education? You said you went to university. How did you enter the world of work? Okay well so during my university time and um, immediately afterwards I had a whole host of jobs. I, I worked on a playing field, I worked in the kitchens of a mental hospital, I worked for my dad's building firm, I ran a hostel for ex-prisoners, I worked on a yacht in the West Indies for a while, so mm -hmm. I, had, I did a range, I worked in Germany for a while too, so I did a range of stuff, but my parents were very keen that I should have a proper career, <laughs> and uh, so that was why I, I kind of ended up reading law at Birmingham, I'm not quite sure I ever really wanted to do that but that's what I ended up doing and then I was lucky enough to get a job at one of the big city law firms a firm called Freshfields you know they're one of the sort of top five I suppose law firms in the country and one of the top firms in the world and uh, I did about I did about five years of takeovers and mergers there basically a very exciting legal career and then you had a bit of a pivot, didn't you? You had a bit of a pivot in the middle. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Can we call well, it a pivot? Yes. Is that a good word? How did it, pivot. How, how I did like it all pivot. come about? I, I like pivot. Uh, okay. Some people thought I'd gone completely mad, <laughs> including my partners at the time. I was By this stage, I'd moved to a, a law firm in East Anglia. And yeah, I just, I, I had always known that law wasn't really for me. The detail, the paper... You know, you, you, you're always doing what your client wants. You've never got a chance as a re I'm going to have this, mm. do this. This is, I've got a great idea. I'm going to do this. And so, um, yeah, I'd been, I was thinking about it for a long time. And I started looking around and thinking, well, what, what else 
should I be doing? Could I be doing? And I was very attracted by the idea of the world of charities and the voluntary sector. I was, I was doing various bits of voluntary work in the community at the time while I was working as a lawyer. So I phoned up the nearest charity to where we lived in Ipswich in Suffolk, which was the Sue Ryder Foundation. Sue Ryder, a lady rider of Warsaw, had, had an amazing life. She worked in the war in the Secret Service and a special operations executive. And then when she finished that work, she did a lot of work with the survivors of the concentration camps in Germany. And she came back and decided to continue that work in a way by setting up a lot of homes for people who were very ill with cancer or motor neurone disease, multiple sclerosis, that sort of thing. Homes that she set up all over the UK and indeed all over Eastern Europe, interestingly. And I phoned her up one day just to say, look, can I, can I come and talk to somebody about working in a charity? And um, oh, she said, look, you'd better come and see me. Well, what are you <laughs> doing tomorrow? So I, I found myself in this extraordinary, this, this lady was tiny, great big blue eyes, very tired looking, surrounded by mounds of papers and phones ringing and people coming and going all the time. And I spent the whole afternoon with her, actually. And she was talking about her work in the war and then her work with these various homes all over the UK. And I just had this extraordinary feeling of literally being picked up and put down in the right place. It was really bizarre, actually. And for the next few months, I just started doing some bits of voluntary work and fundraising for her, bits of free legal advice. And she and her husband, Leonard Cheshire, who had set up the Cheshire Homes, they took to phoning me up and said, well, come on, Mr. Young, when are you going to come and work for us? Hmm. And I was very tempted, but I mean, this was a big decision. I mean, I'd been earning quite good money as a lawyer, as a partner in the firm, and they were offering me something like 60% of my salary or something. It was a huge cut. And I had, uh, well, I was married, we had uh, three children under six. You know, this was... I mean, I can't possibly do that. But my, my darling wife said, look, don't be daft. You, this is a great opportunity. You love the work. You can see you love the work already. You're bored to tears with law. <laughs> Give it a go. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. You can always get back into the law. But just, just try. So I did. And from day one, I just loved every minute of it. I was, I, my job was setting up new Sue Ryder homes all over the country, which meant acquiring mostly beautiful old buildings and converting them for use as nursing homes, getting local people involved in raising money for them and running them, and then eventually sort of handing them over to the professional nursing team to run. And then I would move on to the next home. And I just absolutely loved it. I was working in communities all over the country, working with wonderful people, lovely buildings, and inspired by Sue Ryder and her husband, Leonard Cheshire, who were just extraordinary people. I feel very lucky to have worked with them. It's just a great experience. I mean, as you've just alluded to, it's the, often the events and people in life that shapes our careers and our outlooks. Is there a standout moment or person in particular or something that happened within your life? Because I know you've had your various challenges along the way that you would say helped mould your interests and set you off more onto your charitable trajectory that you started on from that point. Well, I think I mean, we've talk, I've talked about my parents and I think they certainly instilled in me the idea that 
you know, you've got to be prepared to help others less fortunate than yourself. I had a very warm, wonderful family, a, a very pleasant upbringing, and I did feel lucky. And so I'd always had this sense of I ought to do more. And so, I, you know, I was involved in various bits of community work in Suffolk. I ran the local youth group. But I had been frustrated by not really finding an outlet for that until I met Sue Ryder and suddenly saw that actually there was a job there. There was a possibility of a career there, although not many people gave up careers in the law at that point to go off and work for charities. And my partners all thought I was completely bonkers. But <laughs> what, then did one you, what, chap, what did you say to them when they said that you were bonkers? What was your answer? Did you well, have a response? I, you know, I, I just talked about how excited and committed I was about the opportunity. And what was very interesting was that they and other senior lawyers in the town, one or two of them came to me sort of privately and said, oh, I wish I'd had the chance to get out when I was your age. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that was actually, that was the moment. I can vividly remember somebody talking to me in the street and saying exactly that. He was by then, I was in my 30s, he was in his 50s. And I think that was a really influential moment. My goodness, you know, that guy has been doing that job for 20, 30 years and he hates it. What is the point of that? You know, mm. I had the chance to make a difference in other people's lives working with Sue Ryder. But were you scared? Was... Were you scared though? Because it was a massive change. <laughs> yes! You must have been terrified, well, surely. No, I spent six months, Helly, my wife Helly still talks about how I, she used to, <laughs> we had a, a house sort of overlooked the park in Ipswich and she would see me pacing around the park, <laughs> smoking cigarettes, you know, talking to myself about this enormous decision and worrying about it. Yeah, no, I was actually mm. terrified. Um, it's not just about you, is it? It's your family, a young family, yeah, like you course. said. That's what I was so conscious about, that there were so many other people can be affected by that decision. And I mean, they remained affected by it, to be honest. I earned a lot less working for charities than I might have done had I stayed on as a lawyer. So in that sense, their quality of life was reduced by the decision that we both made. But, um, you know, they, they loved my career, I think, and loved being involved in my career. And, yeah, loved seeing me doing something that was completely fulfilling and made me very happy. And I think it's fair to say you've done all right, haven't you? So, um... I've done. <laughs> yes, I have. Oh, yes. I mean, I ended up <laughs> running two of the biggest charities in this country, two great organisations, Macmillan Cancer Support, you know, wonderful cancer charity, very buzzy, happy charity, lots of great fundraising, you know, the Macmillan Coffee Morning, famous as one of the big and best fundraising events in the calendar. You know, we had a real chance to change the face of cancer care in Macmillan, working very closely with the, the new Labour government under Tony Blair. And, you know, we really did make a difference for people with cancer at that time. And then I was lucky enough to be asked to go back to the Red Cross for a second time as chief executive. And, you know, the Red Cross is just one of the most exciting important voluntary organizations in the world i mean there's a red cross or a red crescent in every country on the planet every time there's a major disaster or a major conflict the red cross is right there on the front line providing care to people at the very worst moment in their lives and to be able to play a part in that was just a huge privilege and incredibly exciting i mean i 
in 13 years at the helm of, of the Red Cross, I visited, I went to every single disaster and every single conflict that happened anywhere in the world during that time. You know, you really met people at the very worst point and you had a chance to make a difference for them. That was just fantastic. Did it teach you anything about yourself in those moments? Um, yeah, I mean, it did. It taught me how very lucky I had been to be brought up in this country with a lovely family and to have had the sort of upbringing I'd had. So many people have nothing by comparison. And after a conflict or a disaster, of course, they have even less. It taught me that I enjoyed leading things. I found it really exciting, scary, but exciting to be a leader of great organisations and to have the chance to motivate and inspire people. I mean, I used to say that half of my job was waving my arms around and making a lot of noise. Just so, come on, we can do this. And you know, we've got to go here, we've got to go there. You know, I just loved all that. I, was, I, I discovered I was sort of relatively high energy as a person. And um, yeah, no, it was, it was great. So I discovered that. Yeah, I think that was, it was, it was a great experience. And across all the work that you've done, I mean, you've held government positions and all kinds of things and all kinds of different areas too. Is there any one thing in particular that stands out or that you're particularly proud of? Uh, gosh, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I am proud and grateful for my move to the voluntary sector. I mean, I still look back on that as probably the biggest personal decision I made in my life. And I'm proud that I did that. I'm proud of the work that we did at Macmillan and at the Red Cross. I mean, you know, responding to the Asian tsunami, helping in the war in Syria. I remember visiting Baghdad just after it had fallen during the Iraq war. I feel very proud to have been able to work in those kinds of situations and to make a difference in them. I mean, obviously, I'm incredibly proud of the, the knighthood I was given for services to cancer care. And I, I've also got a, a sort of a knighthood in Italy, believe it or not, as well, which was in connection with the war and my father's oh, wow. experience as a POW. Um, so I'm very proud of those. But I think I always felt that in all those organisations, I always felt this sort of nagging sense, you know, I wish we could have done more. Wherever we went, whatever work we did, however hard we tried to raise the money, however, I mean, you know, I worked with some wonderful people who just really gave everything to help other people. And yet, you know, you just always wanted to do more. And so I think there was always that, that was the, the sort of nagging feeling. I often had at the back of my mind, oh my God, if only we could do more than this, or only if we could do it better. Yeah. How did you first hear about the Women of the Future programme and what inspired you to get involved? And I have to also just say, you're only the second man to appear on this podcast. I've spoken to nearly, nearly 40 women, so Pinky Lilani must like your little bit, it's fair to say. Oh, <laughs> how, did you, how did you first get involved? <laughs> it's all about Pinky and mm. of course everybody knows you can't say no to Pinky. I'm sure you <laughs> no, realise that as you well. You really can't, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was when I was at the Red Cross, I got a phone call from this person called Pinky Lilani, who wanted to come and see me. She sounded delightful, so I said, yes, okay, fine, and she came. And uh, she wanted to ask me to be a judge in the Asian Women of Achievement Awards, which had only been going, I suppose, three or four years at that time. I must confess I'd never heard of it, but it sounded a tremendous honour, so I, I agreed. 
And of course, you know, I just, you know, I met all these extraordinary women who had achieved so much in their lives, often having come from the very worst and most difficult of backgrounds. I mean, either because they were very poor or they lived in very, very poor countries, they you know, struggled to get education, sometimes because their families had obstructed them, uh, abused them even. Yeah, it was just a, a fantastic privilege to meet them. And I've been doing it ever since. I, I don't know, it must be 15 or nearly 20 years now. I'm now chair of the judging panel. So I get to meet all the candidates, not just the ones in my particular category, but I get to meet all the candidates and it's just fantastic. And I get to work with Pinky, who really is the most generous, kind, thoughtful and delightful person, as well as being the world's greatest networker and you know establishing a real network for these for these women so that they can sound off each other and get advice from each other and continue the spirit of the asian women of achievement awards as they go forward in their careers so it's it's just great to be part of that i keep saying pinky pinky surely you must you need somebody new in this role and she keeps refusing so eventually I'll drop <laughs> off my perch but I'm hoping it's not any time soon. I think it's fair to say you enjoy it as well because I saw you get all dressed up for the last awards were held virtually earlier or last year now 2020 but you do enjoy it too. I, I, can, I do. I can I see mean, that. Pinky, early on said to me now Nick we really would like you to dress in Asian style for the evening the big awards evening we have at the Hilton and I I was very, I was nervous about that. Not that I minded dressing up. I love dressing up. I've always done quite a bit of amateur acting. I just worried that it would look somehow patronising or offensive mm. to Asian people. I really did worry about that. No, no, they will love it. And they seem to love it because I, I do. I dress up as a Maharaja every, <laughs> every, 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 <laughs> every time, including when we did the online session this year. And, you look, you uh, look yeah. great. You look great. <laughs> well, you feel so good. You know, you feel like a Maharaja in the, the, these clothes. So, yeah, it's fun. It is a lot of fun. And, and, but it's important, too. I really mm. think it is important to, to recognise achievement. And, I mean, I, you know, as a chief executive of a big charity, I used to spend, you know, an awful lot of my time just congratulating people and thanking people and making people feel good about what they were doing. That's, that's really vital. Right, I have some quick fire questions just to finish. Okay, first one. What would you describe as your greatest success? Oh, I think surviving 35 years in the voluntary sector without uh, going completely bald. <laughs> you do have a fine head of hair, that is true. <laughs> and your greatest failure? I think I've mentioned it. I, I always feeling that I'd never quite done enough, that we could have done more. I, I can't think of any specific failures but just that general feeling i wish we could have done more the mantra of the woman of the future is kindness and collaboration what does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life oh i mean it has always been all about people i think however you whatever kind of organization you're in whatever the wiring diagram looks like whatever your position is in the organization it's all about people and working together. I just think that is by far and away the most important thing. You can have the best strategy in the world, you can have an absolutely immaculate structure, but if people don't work together, 
is people don't like each other and enjoy their work. If people aren't kind to each mm. other, actually, the organisation is going to fail. It's, at the very least, it's going to be a very miserable place to work. I think it's vital, absolutely vital. I also feel like it was one of the most important things that came out of 2020 generally was that people realised the importance of kindness, being kind to people and each other and supporting each other. And that felt like that was an overarching sentiment that everybody got a better grasp of. Did you find well, that? I agree with you, Kim. I mean, you know, the, the volunteering numbers went through the roof. I mean, even in our tiny little village, there were people rushing around saying, what could we do? And can we deliver some food to, you know, the older members of the community and so on? And I mean, you notice it in your daily life. Every email that you send starts out with how are you feeling? Are you mm. okay? You know, I, I just, I, I love that. I think that there has been a real sense, although we've all been locked down in our homes, nevertheless, there has been a tremendous sense of, of community. I mean, here in, in the village, you know, if we go out for a walk, it takes hours because you go, oh, hello, how are you? You know, <laughs> stopping and chatting to people mm. in a way that perhaps we didn't do so much before. And that's really nice. Is there anything that scares you? Um, no, I, I don't think so. Um, we had happened to us about six years ago, the worst thing that I think can happen to parents. We lost a child. And, you know, having, after a fashion, survived that, nothing will ever scare me again, actually. That was a terrible, terrible experience. And... Um, yeah. Yeah, I used, I used to volunteer at Great Ormond Street and part of the training, they, they said there's no word in any language for losing your child because it's just not supposed to happen. You can never imagine. It's not. It, it feel, it's, it's a gross, oh, it's just, it, everything is about it is appalling. And, you know, what is so challenging sometimes is that, you know, one, your friends find it difficult to deal with as well. And some of them were absolutely marvellous and would talk to us and help us, but others just found it too difficult. And mm. you know, that was that was hard for them and hard for us too. Um, yeah, and you know, you don't get over it. It's, it's there all the time, every day. I mean, you know, his picture is all around my study. I say hello to him every morning and good night to him every night. And he's still part of our lives. But um, the, the hole he left is huge. And uh, yeah, I'm not scared of anything after that. Bring it on. Do you think for anyone going through grief, because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there right now that who are, the best thing is to just ask how they are. You know, if someone's afraid of, because you, you often not, I know I am, you're afraid to reach out and say, what can I do? Because you just don't feel like that's enough. Is there anything? Oh, Kim, absolutely. Reach out, give them a hug, get them talking about it or invite them. No, absolutely. I mean, as I said, we did have friends, quite close friends who found it very difficult to talk about. And we would bring Alex's name up in the course of the conversation and they would blanket and change the subject. And mm. I've talked to them about it since. And they, they say, oh, well, we, we didn't want to upset you. I mean, for God's sake, you're upset already. Mm. You know, how, how upsetting is a hug when you're feeling down? You know, absolutely, I, I would so encourage, oh, you know, I found that obviously in my work in the Red Cross, in my work in Macmillan too, just talking to people about how they felt, whether they were scared, you know, what, what their concerns were, it did so much. It helped people. You know, you'd mm. see people grow as you talk to them just mm. letting it out
What's left on your to-do list? Oh, well, I've, I thought about this. Um, I really would like to learn to play the guitar better than I do. Oh, okay. You know, I, I'm a real, I took it up about four years ago and I'm still struggling with it. And You know, you listen to, I don't know, Bob Dylan or Eric yeah. Clapton or... Yeah, you know, wow. Um, You're aiming quite high there. How do these guys do that? You know, <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah, I would love to be able to do that. And I'd like, I've re I've, I'd like to write another couple of books. I've really enjoyed writing, actually. I've really enjoyed writing. I've done a lot since I stepped down from the Red Cross and I find it incredibly satisfying. Wonderful thing to, to have something to write about. I love that. Telling stories is vital, you know, telling the stories. That's just a great feeling when you've got stories to tell. Thank you so much. It's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you for finding the time and I'm hoping everyone out there is as enlightened as I am right now. So thank you very, <laughs> very much. Kim, thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you. It's always nice to talk about yourself. It does not happen. <laughs> you often get that, that chance. It's been great for me, a real treat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.